Let's pray. Father, we are endlessly in desperation for you, whether we recognize it or not. And when we don't recognize it, you tend to make us aware of our need for you. As Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1, says that the difficulty that made him yearn for death instead of life was intended to cause him to depend on you, the God who raises the dead. Even death has no power or control over you. You create life. You give death. All things are yours. In your sovereign hand, you orchestrate all of reality to your greatest glory through and in Christ and in your church to magnify our Lord, our Savior, our husband, our master, Jesus. So we depend on you in Christ, which means we need more Christ. As the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. We need an increase in faith. And I think, Father, that the increase in faith that we need is less about having a bigger or larger faith and more about having a faith that endures, a longer faith, a more sustaining faith. And that we recognize that that faith is only what it is because it's in Christ. It is the object of our faith that endures. So may Christ endure in us and may we be sanctified this morning by your word as we trust in you and depend on you to work in our hearts and our minds for transformation that brings glory to you and satisfies our hearts in the gospel and in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning's text is really about having difficult conversations with people. It's about rebuke, and rebuke's a hard thing, and we're going to learn a little bit about what this word means, but it makes me think of uh, all the difficult conversations I've ever had in my life with people. It's always hard. I want you to think about that. Have you ever had, a, uh, ever had to confront somebody with a difficult conversation about their sin. When you, di- when you did that, how did it go? Like, how did the person respond to you? Have you ever had to have that hard conversation with someone, whether a friend or family member or something? Have to tell them something hard? It's not easy. How'd they respond? Did they receive it joyfully or did they reject it and despise you because of it? I think oftentimes... Sometimes it's the truth. Sometimes the truth itself hurts, and because it hurts, that person may reject you or oppose you because the truth itself is just too heavy for them. But often, it's not the truth that offends our brothers or sisters when we confront them. Oftentimes, it is our approach that offends them, and then the truth itself is lost in the flawed approach. I remember watching a TV show... um, I don't know if I can mention this guy at the pulpit, but I'm going to do it anyways. It was the Cosby Show. 
I don't know if I can talk about Bill Cosby, but he had a great, had a great illustration in the Cosby show once. His, his son-in-law, or his daughter actually had gotten married, and they didn't tell him that they got married. He was glad they got married, but the way that they kind of told the family about it was just not really well done. So uh, he's t- talking to his son-in-law, and he kind of describes the situation to his son-in-law like this. He's like, how would you like if I got made for you just this really thick, juicy, delicious steak? And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be really good. And he's like, and then, and then on it is a side of green beans with, like, butter and salt. Oh, yeah, that sounds really good. And then a side of, like, garlic mashed potatoes with butter in it. Oh, that'd be really good. So what if I brought you that meal, that delicious meal, on a garbage can lid? Would you still want it? He's like, no. Why? Because presentation matters. You know, something delicious and good. You're not going to consume that meal when it's on a trash can lid. You're not, it's going to be a lot harder to consume the truth that's brought to you when the way it's presented is ugly and gross and disgusting and unappealing. So the way we approach people in terms of rebuke or admonition is very important because that's the heartbeat of the text this morning. That the presentation matters. And the subject matter in verses 1 and 2 is admonition or rebuke and talk about what those words mean in every situation that requires rebuke there's a large matter of respect that is due to your brother or sister in christ when you admonish them now this word rebuke is used in the text but we are commanded here not to rebuke because the greek word for rebuke here is something negative, so we shouldn't do it. But Paul commands in 2 Timothy 4.2 to rebuke. So how can Paul command Timothy not to rebuke in this text and then in the next letter command Timothy to rebuke? How can he do that? Because they are two different Greek words with different meanings. But for some reason, translators use the same English word rebuke, and that's probably because both of these words come from the same root Greek word, And so that's the English translation. So there's the positive use of rebuke, like Paul commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. And that means to admonish. So for the remainder of the sermon, just to, to, so there's no confusion, for the remainder of the sermon, I'm going to use the word rebuke as Paul means it in today's text. So today, the word rebuke is a bad thing, okay? But the word rebuke is not typically a bad thing in scripture but today it is because that's how paul is using it he's telling us not to do it so typically when you see the word rebuke uh you should be considering it a positive thing it's something we're commanded to do um so to avoid any confusion using the word rebuke and you not knowing if i'm talking about it in a positive sense or a negative sense i will instead use the word admonish to describe the positive use of rebuking And so, therefore, you need to know what the word admonish means because it's something we're supposed to do. So the word admonish means to call, to encourage, to exhort, or to entreat, kind of convince somebody of something in an encouraging way. It's a positive and comforting means to call someone away from sin and into righteousness. And the difference between the two words is their presentation. So in verses 1 through 2, Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. 
Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Now, the word rebuke in Greek there literally means to assault or strike with a blow, to punish. And though that is used uh, in Greek for oftentimes that word is typically used in Greek to reference like an actual physical assault or strike or blow. But Paul is using it here metaphorically to convey the kind of attitude or approach one should avoid when admonishment is required. Meaning, do not verbally strike them with blows or do not assault them with your words when you have conversations with them. This word rebuke is applied to all these different relationships, whether it's the older men or the younger men or the older women or the younger women. This is the same application for all of these. So do not verbally assault older men, do not verbally assault younger men, do not verbally assault older women, and do not verbally assault younger women. No one in the church should be verbally assaulted. And if you're thinking, well, you know, Jesus got really mad sometimes, and you know, he remember he flipped over some tables, and he kind of verbally assaulted some people. Yeah, that wasn't the church, though. Those were evil men desecrating the temple, which is a picture of Christ himself. So they're desecrating Christ himself, essentially, and that uh, was cause for Jesus to get righteously upset. So this idea of a rebuke not being a verbal assault lines up with biblical wisdom as like Proverbs 15, 4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Okay, so this word perverseness, it means alter or distort or corrupt. So like a gentle tongue is a tree of life. A gentle tongue produces life. A gentle tongue produces a positive response. The only way to get that positive response is with a gentle tongue. And you could describe all the different ways that a tongue is gentle, right? Loving, compassionate, understanding, patient, wise, and all these things. Uh, But when it's perverse, now this word perverse meaning it's distorted or corrupt or altered in some way. What it does is it breaks the spirit. And that idea of breaking the spirit is not a positive brokenness. Like we see in, say, Psalm 51 where David's like broken before the Lord. That's a positive uh, interaction with brokenness. This is a to break their spirit in a non-helpful way. And so what happens is when the gentle tongue is corrupted, it doesn't produce life and it doesn't give life to that person's spirit. It breaks it. It harms it. It hurts it. And Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away truth, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So the concept of a gentle admonishment is wise, as it lays out before the accused person, the person you're admonishing, a soft landing for their heart. If you are rough and harsh and verbally assaulting in your rebuke, then the human sinful condition is to become defensive and angry, leading to more sin and accomplishing no righteousness. But if your approach in admonishing another person is gentle and patient and kind and soft, it's like placing a spiritual safety net under that person so that they can trust you to lay their soul before you in humility, opening and offering their spirit for real transformation. And though the command is do not rebuke, it doesn't mean that there should be no admonition. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have to say the hard things to the right people at the right time and in the right way. 
In verse 1, referring how to admonish older men, Paul says that instead of rebuke, we should encourage him as you would a father. The reason I use the word admonish to convey the positive version of this interaction when you confront somebody about their sin, the, the reason I use the word admonish instead of rebuke to convey that positive sense is, is because the term encourage, the word encourage, the Greek word for encourage in verse 1 is the same Greek word for admonish. So Paul is saying rebuke them but not harshly. Rebuke them in an admonishment. So he's saying, don't bash them with your words. Instead, encourage him toward righteousness with your words. Admonish him. Because, the, because of the English word encourage, I think, I think we just need to understand this English word encouragement. Because if you just read this text in English, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Then it looks like, okay, I can't tell an older man anything. If an older man is in sin and I see that sin, I can't say a word to him. Instead, I just have to encourage him. So I'm going to go up to that guy and be like, hey, old man, I just wanted to encourage you today and tell you how much I appreciate your service to the church. What an encouraging statement. We would all agree that's encouraging. But Paul's not just saying, hey, don't say anything hard to this person. Just say easy things that encourage them. That's not what this text means. He's saying, don't rebuke them in the harshness. Right? In that, in that harsh, negative sense of the word rebuke. Don't verbally assault them. Instead, encourage or admonish them, which means still confront the sin in a call or entreaty or an, ex, an, an exhortation or in an encouraging way. Meaning it could sound something a little bit more like this. this is, I tried to think of like a really good example of what an encouraging but exhorting and admonishing kind of statement would be you approach an older man and you could say, I, hey man, I, I've noticed that you've been missing church a lot lately and I just wanted you to know that I really miss having you around. You know, scripture encourages us to join the body for worship regularly because it's, it not only benefits you, it also benefits the rest of us. So many of us are missing out on your spiritual gifts and your presence, which we dearly miss and I hope that you are encouraged to join us more regularly. And if there's anything I can do to help make that happen or help that happen, just let me know and I'd be happy to do what I can. Love you, old man. Okay, so that's, that's like an encouraging admonition. It's, it's still confronting the sin, but it's done in an uplifting and encouraging way. Now, I'm not saying that there are only two ways to confront people. Harsh verbal assault or really like, oh, it's okay, man, sir. I don't want to step on your toes or hurt your feelings. That's not the only things that we can do. There's other ways to interact with people. But when we have to confront sin, the way we do it is vitally important. And notice how this, that, that little example I give you is still an admonishment. And yet it, 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 the feel is one that eases the burden of shame on that person being admonished. That's, that's really part of this experience is we don't want to produce shame in people. God has produced shame in people that leads to righteousness. I'm not saying that can't happen, but we shouldn't be casting shame on people. So we want our approach to, to, to be done in a way that doesn't cause a person to grab shame and put it over their head, but instead grab truth and, and receive it joyfully. That this kind of encouraging admonition enables the man to feel a sense of belonging 
as you encourage him, that will encourage him to pursue righteousness instead of feeling a sense of shame that will cause him to run away from the one who presented him with this shame. And if they run from the church, then they will be alone to navigate the difficulties of Christian life, exposing them to many other sins. And so we, we want to remove that opportunity for shame because we don't want to confront people with sin and then they feel shame and then there's self-pity involved and then they're kind of want, and then they're off on their own. Instead, what we desire is that they're embraced from that they're feeling love in the admonition and in, therefore in feeling that genuine sense of Christ-like love are able to avoid shame and instead receive that admonition in a way that encourages them toward righteousness. Because that's ultimately our goal, right? If you if you're have to confront somebody about anything, if, you're, if you have any goal other than I love this person and I want to see them become more like Christ, anything other than that is going to be sinful. It's not going to work. Because we are oftentimes motivated by many other reasons. We might think, well, I love this person. I want to be like Christ, so I'm going, to, I'm going to admonish them. But deep down, you know, it's like I have this opportunity to show them that I recognize your sin. I don't struggle with that. There's this self-righteousness and there's this arrogance that's included in it. Like you should be more like this. You should do that. And, and we might not say because I got it figured out. You might not say that, but that's what it sounds like. Right? You ever have anybody confront you with something and the whole time you're thinking, is this person just telling me how great they are? Because if that's in the heart, that's going to come out. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in here is going to come out eventually. So we need to check our hearts when we admonish people and make sure that our presentation is a reflection of our heart. Which means if your heart is not in the right place when you admonish people, the presentation ain't going to be right either. Now, those things are the practical reasons for why the encouraging approach is more effective. But there is a more foundational reason for why this kind of approach is most wise. Whether that person who needs admonishment is old or young or male or female, they are all your brother or sister in Christ, meaning they are like Jesus to you. And we're told by Paul in Ephesians 5.22 that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So why do we submit to one another? Is it because that person's great? Is it because that person's older than me? Is it, is it because that person's younger than me? Is it because they're wiser than me? Is it because they're an elder? Is it because they're older? Whatever the reason is, Paul's saying, no, the reason we show reverence to one another, the reason we submit our desires, our needs, and our benefit to the benefit and needs and desires of others first is because of Christ. Not because of us and not because of them, but because they're in Christ and I'm in Christ. Meaning we should respect each other as if the other is Jesus himself because Christ dwells in them just as, just as much as he dwells in you. And the essence of unity in Christ requires that we submit ourselves to the benefit of others. Always, at any cost to you, for the benefit of others. Obviously, that's a, a point of navigation that requires wisdom. But that should be the fundamental baseline. So the fundamental underlying truth that supports the way we admonish each other is the fact that we must approach each other with the same respect that we would approach Jesus. Now, Obviously, we wouldn't approach Jesus to admonish him for sin because he doesn't sin. But the idea is that we respect each other with reverence for Christ. 
And that is the motivation that should lead our admonitions. If Christ is not at the center of it, it will never work. And it doesn't matter what subject matter we're talking about. Whether it's admonishing or rebuking or teaching or preaching or serving or giving or living or dying or whatever it may be. Praying or talking or singing. Whatever. Whatever subject or topic is addressed in the text. If Christ is not at the heart of it, it is going nowhere. It is going to produce nothing. Because the gospel is the heartbeat of the word of God and the gospel is at the heartbeat of the church and Christ is the gospel. God is the gospel. The gospel is good news, right? And the good news is what? That we get God. And how do we get God? In Christ. Christ is the gospel. So Christ has to drive everything. The gospel needs to move everything. The gospel is the motivation because the gospel is Christ. And so if he is not driving every effort in the church, then those efforts are going to eventually, if they continue without Christ, are going to be exposed by sin. Most likely yours. And, and those things that we're doing without Christ are going to crack and dry up because they're not refreshed. Like Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, it's not refreshed with the water of the word, the sanctifying work of of the word, which Paul describes as water, because water purifies. The word of God purifies. And instead of the word of God or the gospel of Christ or Jesus himself moving or being that flowing water that runs through everything we do, if he's not it, if that's not the movement of everything you do, Christ, then your life and your movement and your activities will dry up. I was golfing. Last week when we were in Vegas, man, I was golfing so well. You guys should have seen me. It was really good. It was the best I've ever golfed in my life. I'll tell you about it later. So we're on this golf course. I'm doing so well, and I'm just so excited, and I have this one shot. And the green is, like, really wide but super thin. So you've got, like, 10 yards to drop this ball. And if you go over the back... It's going to just run down this hill. And if you go short, there's two massive sand traps. And in between the sand traps is this tiny little strip of fairway that you have to get it on. So you, you have to be really good at golf to land this ball right on the green. So the two other guys I'm golfing with landed the ball right on the green. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's my turn. And I'm nervous because they just hit good shots. And I hit mine, and it goes up. I'm like, oh, that's going to be good. Yeah. And you know where it lands? Boom, right in the sand. I go over to the sand and I look down and, you know, sand, you think about being at the beach, it's soft, you step in it and your feet squish into it, right? And when you hit a golf ball in the sand, what you want to do, I'm going to give you guys a little golf lesson, what you want to do is you want to chip about maybe two inches before that ball and really give it a good swing and you're going to lift that sand and lift that ball out, which requires that the sand itself is soft and amiable and, you know, but, but I look down at my ball in the sand trap and I look at the sand around it and it's so dry that there's just big hard chunks of sand cracked like the middle of the desert floor you know and I'm like I can't hit a golf ball out of this so I had to take relief out of the sand trap and a stroke which was not cool but I still did well anyways just so you know but but my my point is I look down at the sand trap and I'm like that is an uncared for sand trap a good golf this is a public course obviously because a private course wouldn't allow that but i'm looking and, and i'm thinking you cannot do what you're supposed to do in the sand when it's this dry so i literally can't hit a shot out of here and and so 
the functionality of this golf course is totally changed by it not being tended to and taken care of, by it not having what it needs, water. It's like that's the, our life with Christ. We become like that sand trap, just this dried up, broken, cracked, unusable, non-functional person. So we need the word of God and the gospel of Christ to be this flowing water that works and, and runs through us that leads us to everything. And, and it's, it's softer and it's more amiable and it works better. And when the gospel is motivating us, that's what happens in our approach to other people. When we have to admonish others is it's refreshing. Dry is not refreshing. I lived in Montana, all right? It's dry out there. We lived in eastern Montana. It's like the desert, okay? In the sun, it's like 100 degrees. In the shade, it's like 70. Like, you could literally feel like a 20-degree difference probably just between shade and sun. Like, I know that feeling that, you know, and people say, oh, it's hot, but it's a dry heat. It's still hot. It's like standing in an oven. It's just, you can feel the heat. I mean, and, and that dry air is the opposite of refreshing, Versus living in Wisconsin, where we have thousands of lakes and lots of vegetation and trees, and it stays really humid here. It's refreshing to have moisture, and Christ is the flowing water of life and the Word of God that we need to run through us as we admonish one another because it's refreshing. So, That is the motivation, Christ, that should lead our admonitions so to ensure that we are gentle and not abusive because how we treat others reveals our level of respect for Jesus. I always just say, how you treat other people is how you treat Jesus. I should say more specifically, how you treat other believers is how you treat Jesus because the other believer has Christ in them. And Jesus himself said, you treat others, how you treat others is how you're treating me because I'm them. I mean, what Jesus' point there is that your thoughts about me should be so influential that it affects how you treat everybody, believer or not. Meaning you should treat people the way you treat me. And if you treat people poorly, that's like treating me poorly because you don't respect me, therefore you don't respect others. Even non-believers are included in that to a certain degree. So how we treat others is really how we treat Jesus. Now, Paul goes on in the text to say, and at the end of verse 1, the middle of verse 1 to verse 2, treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters. Now, these commands are the same as the command for how we treat older men. It's the same principle applies. So... Uh, Paul doesn't explicitly state that each of these different people should not be rebuked but encouraged as he did with the older men. But linguistically, it's the same statement, only with different kinds of people. So when Paul says the word treat in the middle of verse one, treat younger men, treat older women, treat younger women. That word treat means apply the same principle that I just told you about older men. Apply that. To all these other people, apply the, the do not rebuke, but encourage like with older men to the younger men and to the older women and to the younger women. Meaning Paul's really saying 
Do not rebuke a younger man, but encourage him like a brother. Do not rebuke an older woman, but encourage her like a mother. Do not rebuke a younger woman, but encourage her like a sister. So the command to not verbally assault others when addressing their sin or their failures or any foolishness that they might have applies to all of these admonitions, no matter who you're talking to. And in all of these cases, we are to view each, each of these people as our brother or sister in Christ, which affects the way we approach them and affects our attitude and it affects our degree of compassion that we have for them as they wander in sin and we see them wandering in sin. And let's be honest, a lot of us don't even recognize our sin and we need someone to point it out to us because typically sin is a habit. And if it's a habit, it's probably so ingrained in us, we don't even recognize that we're in it. Sometimes we're so deep in our own garbage that we can't even smell it or we get you know, desensitized to the smell. We just think this is normal. And, we, and that's, that's one of the greatest benefits to having the body of Christ, to having brothers and sisters in Christ, to having the church, is that other people can go, you smell funny. Like, your life looks off. Something doesn't smell right. I can, what's going on in your life? How can I help you? What are you dealing with? What are you struggling with? Can I pray for you? What's going on? I'm here for you. I love you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you. I want to serve you. I want to bless you. I want to take care of you. I want to see you grow. I want to see you love Christ more. I want to see the sin that I'm smelling or seeing just change. And not, not just for your benefit, but it's for my benefit too. A better you is a better me. A high tide raises all ships in the church. And so it not only benefits you, and it not only benefits me, it benefits the rest of us. And here's the best part. It magnifies the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And if that is not the most satisfying sound to your ears or the most satisfying truth that you want to see and experience, then maybe I'm thinking you've never experienced it. Because I have. And when I see Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ magnified in the powerful working of his gospel in people's life in real ways, it is awesome. Awesome. Seeing lives changed and, and families fixed and relationships restored and, and, and those kinds of things happen. And you see the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel, changing lives, genuinely changing lives, making people go from misery to complete satisfaction and joy in Christ. There is nothing more satisfying to be a part of than that. And I probably see that maybe more often than you because it's like literally my calling to be invested in those kinds of things in many people's lives. But that also means I've seen the opposite probably more than you. Or I've seen people not trust Christ and the gospel and seen lives fall apart and see people reject those things and not receive admonishment and push away and, 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 and misery and, and pursue their sin and choose death instead of life. I've seen that just as much. And that, that's the worst. That breaks my heart. And as just think about it. Those people who reject the admonition, reject Christ, reject the truth, and they choose the misery, they choose the stank, they choose the garbage, they choose that life. Those people choose it because that habit is so deeply ingrained in who they are. They can't imagine that you're possibly right. I'm not sinning. You're sinning. I have to justify you even talking to me like this. You're the one who's sinning. I, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's you. And that, that habit is so deeply rooted in their heart that there's, they just push away. 
And to watch them not trust in Christ is painful. And it hurts because you, you love these people. And what Paul's talking about here is if that person's going to do that, don't let it be because of the way that you address them. Don't let it be because of your presentation. Don't let it be because, let the truth be the determining factor. Let the truth itself reveal to them their sin in a loving and compassionate, understanding and gentle way. In, as Paul says, an admonishing way or an encouraging way. And let the truth sit on on the table before them and let them deal with the truth. Don't distract the truth with yourself, with your presentation. With harsh words, with verbal assault, with arrogance, with self-righteousness. Don't let those things get in the way of the truth. And if they want to push away now, as you present the, the gospel, as you present life, as you present transformation, as you present Christ, as you present their sin, and you present that truth to them, if they want to push it away, then they've got a problem with God. They've got a problem with truth. And that's between them and God, not you. So don't let it be you who becomes the problem. And that's Paul's ultimate encouragement to us here, or command. Now Paul addresses each age and sex with a specific prescription for admonishment. And for the older men, out of respect for a long-lived life, we should treat older men like a father when we admonish them because the fact is that they know more about life than you. They may, not be, they may not know as much about the Bible as you. They might not know as much about certain things in life. You might know something more specific more than them. You might even know God better than them. You might, not, you might know Christ better than them. You might know the gospel better than them. Or you might know certain other things. You might know more about music than they do or something. Maybe you have better cultural references than they do. But the fact of the matter is, They have more life experience than you do, period. And therefore, there's a certain degree of respect that Paul is calling to them to treat them like a father. I mean, treating them with the respect of their life experience. They have life experiences that you simply have not traversed. And admonishing them with encouragement instead of rebuke ensures that you are not putting your foot in your mouth with a man who might look down on you for your age if you do not approach him with a loving disposition. Essentially, humility is required because it mitigates the chances of the older man taking offense at what could be perceived as young and wild and reckless and immature arrogance. And that's why Paul tells Timothy earlier in uh, Verse 12, do not let them despise you for your, for your youth. That's the same idea. Don't give them a reason to feel like you're disrespecting them. And don't give them a reason to disrespect you by the way that you present yourself to them. And that's especially true for older men. And obviously also for older women. Is there a part of this text too? And they also have that life experience. And I think it's very common. I've seen this my whole life. Like... There are a lot of times, I see this typically, like, because I, ha- I run, you know, I run in groups of, like, pastors a lot. Um, I remember years ago, like, living in Illinois when I was a young pastor, and I was friends with a bunch of young pastors. And there was this young pastor who wrote this article about how much more beneficial a young pastor is than an old pastor. And I read it, and I was like, ooh, you're going to get a lot of people hating you for this one. 
And it was like this idea that like, yeah, well, they're old and kind of, you know, used up. And I was like, uh-uh, don't say that. Like, <laughs> first of all, it's not true. Second of all, that sounds so arrogant coming from a young man. I mean, this, this, this uh, article I wrote, I'm like, it just screams. I don't know what I'm talking about. I have no life experience. And in total arrogance and like wild, young recklessness, you just look foolish. So you see that sometimes. And... Uh, that's kind of the, the that's kind of what Paul's arguing against. Is like, don't let that kind of presentation be present in any interaction with older people. Give them the respect that they deserve. They've been through a lot. You don't know their life. I mean, that's one thing that I know for sure. I learn more and more as I get older. And part of my developing wisdom in life, and when I say wisdom, I don't just mean like spiritual wisdom, I mean just general life experience wisdom that I gain is that I see over and over is that. People have gone through things, and I don't know all those things, and they have experiences I don't know about, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because when I haven't given people the benefit of the doubt for their experiences, it has always bit me back. So there's this certain degree of respect for older men and and also for older women that have life experience that we don't. Now, younger men, older women, and younger women They're clumped together here, uh, and ultimately older men are too. So Paul's using this statement about older men, but that statement's going to apply to all of them. And and so Paul is essentially saying that there are sins common to each of these different ages and sexes. Like he's delineating between them because they're different. They're unique. You handle them differently, partially because... Each group of these people, the different ages and sexes, have different struggles. Or what we maybe say like are common sins for that particular age group or that particular gender or sex. For example, young men are more likely to be wrapped up in sexual sin, while older women are more likely to engage in gossip. We see that, that that's evident in Scripture. So this means that Paul is thinking that the admonition for each of these different kinds of people will be for the kinds of sins that are somewhat common to their specific age and sex group. And because of this, Paul's not talking about doctrinal error. Because doctrinal error affects everybody at every level. Obviously, it could be in different ways. But Paul will deal with doctrinal error. So he's, he'll deal with doctrinal error later in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And, and, and when he deals with doctrinal error, his approach for doctrinal error is far more punitive than for the common sins of regular people in these specific age groups. And that doesn't mean that common sins are less destructive or less important, but it shows that there is a required grace that must be shown in admonition because many believers' journey of sanctification will require the stripping of probably fairly common sins for that specific age or that specific gender. And that affects you know, individuals in that unique age and sex. So, so now the text ends... With these words, in all purity. And it comes right after Paul mentions admonishing young women. Now, doing research on this text, right? And I'll tell you what I discovered. I discovered that there are two ways to think about this text. And there are two different, two primary interpretations of this phrase, in all purity. One interpretation that I found from a number of commentators is this idea that Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, you're a young pastor and you're going to be dealing with young women. 
Okay, and you're going to have to admonish these young women. You're going to have to encourage them out of sin, which is going to require a lot of interaction with young women. So do so in all purity, meaning the phrase in all purity applies directly to the young women. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that this phrase in all purity applies to moral purity, that it's for, that, that there is, needs to be moral purity in the interaction with older men, younger men, older women, younger women. It applies to all of them. Now, my understanding of the text is that you know, Paul uses this word back in 4.12 when he commands Timothy to be an example in many ways, including being an example in purity. So I think in 4.12, he's talking about sexual purity because he goes through a list of different types of examples that Timothy needs to be, and sexual purity is a part of that. In the Septuagint, if you guys don't know what the Septuagint is, it's the earliest copy we have of the Old Testament written in Greek. It was probably written about 2nd century B.C., so it was written a couple hundred years before Christ. It was written by 72 Hebrews, 72 Jews, six from each of the 12 tribes. And so you've got this like... Old Testament written in Greek because Hebrew wasn't well known and uh, as well known um, in that second century BC. And so they translate to Greek, Koine Greek, because everybody knew Koine Greek, which is just kind of the common Greek language of the time. Koine Greek in around that time, around uh, the end of the BC, early ADs, Koine Greek is a lot like English today in the world. It's like, I think English and Mandarin are the two most spoken languages in the world. Um, English is everywhere. It's kind of like how Konya Greek was. It was like, this is the language that everybody speaks. So they translate it. And in the Septuagint, uh, this word, the Greek word for purity here, is used for ritual purity. So we see that this word, this phrase, can be used in different types of purity, not just sexual purity. And here in 5.2, I think that it's used to convey moral purity. The word purity is meant to be construed with the verb in the text, right? So, so if you kind of like take the, the middle of the text out, um, in the middle of verse 2, it starts with this verb treat. And if you just think of the younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, you kind of take that out as sort of a parenthetical statement and you just stick the rest of the text together. It says treat these people in all purity, that's kind of how the, 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 the connection between the, the verbs and the nouns and whatever work together. So they should be understood or construed together that this purity is in relation to the verb, which is treat. And since treat applies to all these different ages and sexes, so also does purity. Meaning Paul is not specifically saying to Tim, that Timothy, a young man, is to ensure that he admonishes young women in sexual purity. That's not specifically what Paul is saying. Rather, he's more generally saying that his admonishment of any of the groups must have moral purity. So as not to impose on himself any need for admonition being thrown back into his face. So moral purity is required in your admonition, so that admonition doesn't need to come back. Uh, R.C.H. Lenski, he's a Bible commentator. He's dead. He's a long time ago. Uh, He wrote this, All admonishment is itself to be without flaw or fault, for nothing spoils admonition more than when it is done in a way that lays the one who is admonishing open to counter-admonishing. Admonition. 
Now, given this application of the phrase in all purity, the sexual nature of purity is also implied because sexual purity is included in the general moral purity. And because a lot of commentators understand this text to, to reference sexual purity specifically with young women or maybe with everybody, uh, depending on who you ask, I, I do want to just cover that a little bit. The reality is that Timothy is a young man. He needs to admonish young women. And think about it. Admonishment is a private matter. Can you imagine if I stood up here and I said, hey, you, come up here. I'm going to tell everybody about your sin. You'd be like, uh, no, thanks. I'm just going to stay here or leave. <laughs> you know, you don't want me to put you on blast in front of everybody. So I'm not going to do that. It's a private matter. So I would talk to you privately. And if I'm a young man and you're a young woman, well, you, there needs to be wisdom in, uh, uh, applied in that scenario to prevent an impurity in the church. And the temptation for sexual impurity with young women, especially for young pastors uh, or young church leaders or just any young man. Because though Paul's telling Timothy to do this, the, the, the treatment of the text really is a generality for the entire church. This is something we should all be engaged in. And it requires wisdom because you can destroy relationships quickly if this is not done well. So when in doubt... Talk to someone older, wiser, more mature than you, someone that you can trust and say, how should I go about dealing with this? So the temptation for sexual impurity with young women is prevalent. And one of the ways that he secures moral purity is by avoiding sexual impurity with young women. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes out of a seer. Uh, writes out a series of ungodly behaviors done by people who we are, we are to avoid. These are ungodly people who, like, Paul's like, stay away from these people. It's just a long list of just a lot of different sins. It's like, this is, a, this is what people are going to be like in the last days. That's what Paul's saying. And then he says in verse 3, 2 Timothy 3, 6, among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. It's the same kind of impurity that takes place in these admonishments. Admonition is certainly a reason to creep into a woman's home. And if she's spiritually weak, she can be captured by lust, by the young man who leads her astray by sexual passion. But if Timothy or any of us need to admonish another we must have total moral purity awareness. Like that awareness before going into the scenario so that you can preserve purity before you're even tempted by anything that could be considered impure or immoral. And you avoid those situations. And commentator D. Edmund Hybert writes this, What miserable scandals would have been avoided in all ages if young ministers had always heeded Paul's admonition? So there is a fundamental principle that will allow all of us to admonish each other in a loving and gentle and gracious and understanding and compassionate way. And that fundamental principle is that we consider others more important than ourselves. How can I consider you more important than me? How do I do that? What do I need and what do I need to know? In order to consider you more important than me. I need Christ in me. I need the mind of Christ. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul tells us this. That we should consider others more important than ourselves. Or count others more important than ourselves. And he calls it having the mind of Christ. So how do I consider someone else more important than me? I have to have the mind of Christ. Which Paul says is mine. That kind of mind is in Christ and it's mine. So I have to have the mind of Christ to see people that way. 
And with the mind of Christ, I can see my brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Meaning I can see Christ in you. So I need Christ. I need the mind of Christ so that I can see you as Christ. And that will help me navigate how to engage. How to be loving. How to be gentle, compassionate, understanding. And, 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 and ultimately, that's going to be the best way to really produce genuine change in the church. Now, I want us to be careful because I don't want all of us to go, okay, I got it. I got the point of the message today. My goal then now, so what Mark's telling us to do is we should walk around the church looking for everybody's sin. And when we see it, we got to just take note of it and then come up with a really nice way to do it and then make sure that everybody I know hears about their sin. But I'll do it in a loving and gentle and compassionate way. It's not the aim here, right? I mean, Jesus is pretty clear. Like, take the log out of your own eye before you see the speck in your brother's eye. That is a principle that needs to be applied too. Before we start recognizing other people's sin, why don't we check our own hearts first? I think the first thing you should do is if you see somebody in sin and you recognize the sin, you're like, oh, I see that in that person. Before you even think about what that sin means to them in their life, you should take that specific sin and put it in the mirror and go, is it in me? Maybe, maybe God is sovereign. Maybe in God's sovereignty is like, hey, I am ordaining that sin in that person's life, giving you eyes to see it so that you'd recognize that sin, become aware of it, and check it in your own heart because my real goal is to get at your heart, not theirs. You ever consider that? And then you're able to bring that sin before the Lord and confess it and work on it and, you know, um, crush and kill that sin. And then as you become sanctified through that sin, now you're enabled to bring that love and compassion and an experiential understanding because you just went through it too to that person. You go, listen, I noticed this in your life. When I noticed it in your life, I saw it in mine too. And I brought it before the Lord and he broke me and he wrecked me and he ruined me and it felt, it hurt, but it was so good. And this is where I'm at now because of it. And I'm just sharing that with you because I see that happening in your life too. And I want you to experience a joy in Christ that the power of the gospel worked in me. I want to see it in your life too. Can I help you with that? Who would look at you and go, no. I would be like, oh my gosh, you love me so much. It's such a loving way to interact with people. And do you see the humility in that? Do you see the brokenness? There's no arrogance in that. There's just an experience and an understanding and a love and a compassion that comes from I've been there too. Because I saw it in you and God brought it out in me. I saw the log in my own eye. I took it out. Now I can help you with the speck in yours. This means we have to do two things. And they will keep you from sin and your admonition and it will also secure the faithfulness of the one you're admonishing. Those two things are this. Think of others as you think of Christ and think of yourself as you think of Christ. Meaning, consider others like Jesus. And Consider that you too are also like Christ. And that's an important reality. It's not selfish to think about yourself. I would say it's not selfish to think about yourself because the greatest way that you can glorify God is to be satisfied in him, which means your highest aim in God's glory in life is your own joy in Christ. You being joyful. You being satisfied. You being Happy in Christ is your greatest achievement in life. 
because it is God's greatest way to glorify himself specifically in you. And that sounds selfish to be self-focused. It's not self-focused. It's Christ-focused. It's gospel-centered. It's God-glorifying. It magnifies the power of Christ, not the power of you. It's not selfish as long as the joy and satisfaction are in Christ. It's not just about you being happy. Pizza makes me happy. You know what makes me happy? Football starts today. That makes me happy. I really like that. Okay, But that's not going to last. Because you know, as much as I love football, once the Super Bowl's over, it's like, oh man, got to wait till September for football again? What else am I going to do? Thank, thank the Lord for the NBA playoffs and <laughs> March Madness. Like, it's just, you know, if, if I'm living, and I, and I say this because that, those are the kinds of things that genuinely consume our culture. Like people are like, they live for football season. Or they live for certain things in life, you know? Live for golf season. Live for new movies that are coming up. Or they live for food or sex or some other prevalent sin that can just capture you with new habits and create sin. And and we ultimately need to recognize that none of these things are going to satisfy like Christ. And we know that, but do you experience it? Because... There is a joy and a satisfaction in knowing Jesus more that we should be pursuing. And that's not selfish. So we need to recognize not only that they are in Christ, but that we too are in Christ. And that's not selfish. And in doing so, you can ensure that your admonitions are motivated by Christ's likeness. And therefore, will be gentle in nature, pure in morality, and effective in holiness. Securing securing the faithfulness of your friend, the glory of God, and your joy in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we know that like, it's hard to admonish, it's hard to have hard conversations, and then it's hard to see sin in others and then turn that in on ourselves and, and check our own hearts. All these things are hard to do. And we know that, it's, that, that the harder it is, the more it glorifies you. We look at Jesus' life and we think that's the hardest life ever lived, hands down, no question. Indisputable reality that Jesus lived the hardest life imaginable. Why? Because he endured the fullness of every temptation, yet without sin. That's way harder than when we give in to sin early. And in his total and perfect endurance through temptation and never giving in to sin, Jesus gets the most joy. Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He gets the most joy because he produces the most glory. And he produces the most glory because he gets the most joy. That joy comes in doing the hard things. We have to do hard things, God, and it starts with our own hearts and our faces in a mirror. And then we can take the speck out of our brother's eye in an understanding experience of knowing what it feels like to endure that hard thing. It will produce compassion in our hearts. And we want that compassion, Father. We want that gentleness. We want that love. We want to have a tongue that reflects a pure heart, a morally pure heart. So our admonitions are not rejected but received because we ourselves have been humbled by that very sin. 
I pray that you make this a reality in our church. It will not be easy, nor will it be fun, but it will be full of joy. And it's the only thing that really matters. It's the only thing that really lasts. So why would we want anything else? So we ask for that transformation in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.